Father in heaven, Lord, may you be praised. May everything about this service have as its focus the worship and exaltation of you and your son. Whether it be our fellowship, God, because that is something that we see in scripture, to fellowship with one another, fellowship with the saints, love one another, care for one another. Whether it's our giving, whether it's our time like right now in prayer to you. Because thankfully, Lord, your throne room of grace is, is open to us. We have a, a direct line with you, with your Son. I pray that, Lord, our time in the Word now will be profitable for us, but bring glory to your name as well. We do pray for the Hernandezes, Lord, and for healing to come to them. It's been a few years of sickness for many people, Lord, and we know that you are the great healer and the great physician. For that, we give you thanks. And, and now, Lord, just give us ears to hear and hearts to, to understand, minds to, to trust in, believe in your truth that it will mold us, shape us, conform us more and more into the image of your Son. And we pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Some of you uh, might know, and maybe others don't, I love to fish. I love to go fishing. Now, why does somebody go fishing? It's pretty simple, right? To catch fish. Exactly. I, I talk to people, and, and uh, that's like the best thing you do with a kid. If you ever have, have your kid and you want to take them fishing and hopefully get them hooked on fishing, pun intended, then uh, you want to take them to a place where they can catch fish. Because for them not to catch fish, it's just a real drag. It's a bummer, and they don't want to fish anymore. Surprise. Well, I love to fish. I grew up fishing with my dad. My dad was the one that taught me to fish, and specifically, we enjoy to fly fish. And he taught me to tie my own flies. In fact, I think he still has some of my early ones that would be on a big giant hook, and it's just feathers and yarn and lots of thread, lots of thread wrapped around it. And so anyway, my dad and I have always fished together and always enjoyed that. Um, and at some point, we thought, you know, we need to go to one of these fishing schools, we need to go to one of these places where they are going to teach us to fish better, which ultimately means what? We can catch more fish. That's the idea. So one year we did. We went up the backside of California to, uh, to a ranch up there where they're giving a fly fishing school on the Owens River. And for, I don't know, two or three days, we sat there in the classroom and we learned about fly fishing and tying flies and this, that, and the other. And then we, they took us outside and we're practicing our casting and, and you know, technique and, and what have you. And we had a couple of instructors that were tremendous. So we're, we're just following them and listening to them and doing what they tell us to do. And then they actually take us out on the river. And now they're giving us that, that continued instruction on the stream. And, and I'll never forget, at one time I'm fishing this one run and there's a little embankment and the instructor's up above me and he said, you know, I, I, I'm fishing with a nymph. So that's a fly that goes down and it goes down to the bottom. And he said, I think, I think they're, you're getting hits and you don't realize it. He said, when I tell you, I want you to go ahead and set the hook. I was like, seriously? He said, yep. I said, okay. So I cast up, I'm letting my fly drift down. He says, now, whoop, guess what? Fish on, fish on. I'm like, whoa, man, you're like a genius, you know? And and, and, and so then, then we even got to spend a day after the class was over with one of the instructors. His name was Dan. 
He became kind of a, a friend of our family over the years. And Dan and I and my dad went to go fish another stream uh, in the eastern Sierras. And I'm watching Dan. And so now he's a professional, basically. He, he ran the uh, Orvis uh, fly fishing store in, uh, in San Francisco. And, and the guy knows what he's doing. And I'm watching him and he's casting. And, and like every few seconds, he's like jerking back like he's got one. But he doesn't. I'm like, what is he doing? And casting, choom. And then he go, choom. And they go, Choo. and I'm like, what is it? So I go over there and I'm asking Dan, what are you, what's going on? He said, well, basically I'm upping my percentages. You know, you just never know. You never know when that fish is that little, you know, you got a little indicator and it, maybe it just makes a little movement. So he says, I, I mean, it might be a weed, but if I think it's a weed, but it's really a fish, I'm going to miss it. So he just keeps, so I'm like, oh, okay, I got to start doing that. So next thing you know, I'm doing that. And every time I saw a little blip on my, on the thing, it, you know, I, I jerk and strike and, and, and. Most of them were not a fish, but guess what? Some were fish. Times that I wouldn't have even thought to set the hook. And, and, and I realized that this, this whole time, we are, we are becoming, well, we, we used Dan and we used the other fellow that was instructing us. We we're trying to imitate them. We're using them as our examples. And when we did that, we imitated them. They became our examples. Guess what we started seeing? We caught more fish. We did. We caught more fish. Well, I, I, I tell you that kind of lengthy story because here this morning and what we've been seeing from First Thessalonians, we could say it's about catching more fish, but in the spiritual realm, right? That we would catch people. That, that, that we would be, be using the, the gospel to, to cast it out there, right? And set the hook, knowing that, well, that's all God's doing, right? That he, he causes somebody to repent and believe, but, but he calls us to be the fishers, the fishers of men, the fishers of women. And so what we see here in this text we've been going through, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's been a lot from Paul and Silas and Timothy about being imitators. Well, actually, they are calling the people of Thessalonica to be imitators of them. And then the people then become examples. In other words, these folks in Thessalonica have have heard the gospel. They've received the word. They are have been saved and then they are commended by Paul for imitating he and the others. And then he talks about how they have actually become examples. Examples to other folks. And, and not just in and around Thessalonica. But they have become examples throughout um, Greece. Which is composed of Achaia and Macedonia. So... Again, just kind of uh, by way of review, chapter 1, we found, or, uh, we found uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy commending the church at Thessalonica for their faith, labor, and love, and, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, you know what? I'm just going to toss in a little uh, info thing here. I, I'm, I, when I'm even going through my sermon, I'm like, it's always Paul, Silas, Timothy, Paul, Silas, Timothy, you know, because he says, we, we, we. And I'm, I was like, I'm getting a little tired of saying Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So if I say just Paul, know that I mean Paul, Silas, and Timothy, okay? All right, because uh, this whole thing is about them uh, as a whole. Um, but that's just kind of, a, kind of the case. Paul writes of God's choice of the Thessalonians for salvation and how the gospel came to them. 
not just in word, but through the examples of the apostles by means of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Thessalonian believers received the gospel with joy, the scripture teaches, even amidst tribulation. And they went on to become imitators and examples of Paul. And and that's what I want us to continue to see by being imitators ourselves of people like certainly Paul and and Silas and Timothy. and And then, of course, of the scripture, then we too can be examples, thereby catching more Fish, But yes, the word has gotten around of their tremendous example. And at the center of all this was the fact that the Thessalonians had turned away from their idolatry, um, worshiping idols, to serve a living and true God. And they were waiting for Jesus, God's Son, whom he raised from the dead to rescue them from the wrath to come. And then practically speaking, I, I, I asked us to kind of turn the mirror on ourselves... And asked, how are we as a church doing in the the area of faith, love, and hope that we saw back in chapter 1? Are we a church where the gospel reigns supreme? Are these things characteristic of us? How are we perpetuating the gospel? Are we imitators of the Lord and are we godly examples for others? And then last week, we delved into chapter 2, which which breaks down into two very uh, specific parts. The first, in verses 1 to 12, is really all about the gospel coming to the Thessalonians. That that Paul and company showed up with the uh, specific intent and purpose of sharing Christ with them. And then when we get to the latter half, verses 13 to 20, in chapter 2, it's really more about now what has happened to them after they have received the gospel, they have put their faith, hope, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we might say their sanctification, but salvation, sanctification, it's all the gospel. It's all the good news of Jesus. Well, last week we only got through um, half of verses 1 to 12. We got through 1 to 6. And what we found is Paul giving a defense for the gospel that that he and the others brought to them. And it really is a great model of evangelism for the church. What to do, what to not do, where the gospel is concerned. And specifically then in verses 1 to 6, we saw that sharing the gospel requires boldness. It requires boldness. It also requires you to please God rather than men. And then lastly, we learn that sharing the gospel can never ever come from error, impurity, deceit, flattering speech, greed, glory from men, or even heavy-handed authority. These were kind of the don'ts. This week, we get to the do's. We get to the do's. As we continue on with verses 7 to 12, part 2 of Fulfilling the Great Commission, where you will see five ways that the gospel should be shared, should be shared. Uh, Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word as we Read verses 7 to 12. Paul says this. But we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. But also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you 
into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, this just brings us to our first point. That the gospel should be shared with true care and concern. Oh, I forgot to put in my shameless plug for the evangelism class tonight, uh, 5 to 6.30. Oh, shucks, there it is. The gospel should be shared with true care and concern. Look at verse 7 again. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. What a, what a beautiful picture here. And let me just set the stage a little more because... How Paul did things as a missionary is obviously different from how we say do things in terms of the gospel ministry here at Calvary Bible Church. For instance, Paul and company were kind of traveling, of course, from city to city. They'd get to one place and kind of set up shop there for a time. And, and Paul had a very customary, specific way of doing things when they got to each of these cities. And we learned this back in Acts 17, verses 1 to 4, where it talks about the apostles stay specifically in Thessalonica when he says, it says uh, Luke writing, now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Uh, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them, uh, referring to Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Now, what I imagine uh, was happening here is that maybe there were some Gentiles that actually did attend the temple... Uh, the temple worship, but I imagine that in between those three Sabbaths, those three weeks that, that he had, that Paul is taking every opportunity to preach Christ to the Gentiles. I would guess in whatever context was available to him, whether it was the town square or he's out on a hillside or he's down uh, at, the, at the seashore or in the harbor there at Thessalonica, people's houses, wherever he could share the gospel. And as people believed and people got saved, then they start to form into this local church. It would seem unlikely that maybe they kept meeting just in the synagogue because in this case, there were also many more Jews who became jealous and really made life miserable for the apostles. We also, we don't know the exact amount of time that, that Paul and the others were in Thessalonica. We heard about three Sabbaths, but it would seem that they were actually there for, um, that was the time when he initiated, you know, his, his kind of gospel thrust. Uh, but that they actually stayed longer, maybe even for several months because of what we will see In our text next. Uh, In other words, what's different from them versus even us here at Calvary Bible is that Paul was on basically an evangelistic crusade, right? Going from city to city, kind of like we've seen some of the evangelistic crusades such as Billy Graham uh, showing up to a city and starting to preach the gospel and then even, you know, setting up a shop there for, it used to be back in the days, huh? Uh, Weeks at a time even, as much as was needed. If I remember correctly, the Los Angeles one was one that just, boy, kept going and going. Now, whereas Billy Graham's crusades could funnel new believers to existing churches, right? You got to remember, they didn't have that. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they had to help organize those folks into a local 
church and establish leadership and continue to teach them the word of God. And remember what they didn't have back then. What didn't they have? That, right? We got to remember that. That what they're getting this is from Paul and the others. And so, boy, they might need them around a little bit to kind of, you know, imagine you're just being told these things. Maybe they're writing them down, you know, as, 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 as Paul is saying them. But, yeah, they didn't have Bibles like we do. You know, for us today, of course, we already have this wonderful existing church that has been here. I asked Ruth about this. Over 65 years. Over 65 years, Calvary Bible Church. So the situation between us and the newly forming church of Thessalonica uh, is a little different, but certainly there are still principles for us to learn, put into practice in our lives and in the life of Calvary Bible. So going back to verse 7, again, it says that they did this. They, they brought the gospel to the, the Thessalonians with gentleness. With gentleness. We prove to be gentle among you. And then he says again, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And we know from here and proceeding verses that Paul and and company developed a fond affection for this group of people. But even before that affection could be established, gentleness was the way in which the gospel was presented to them. So so let's just, you know, talk for a moment about gentleness, this this, the word there, Greek-wise, is, is epios. And we see the same Greek word in 2 Timothy 2.24, but it's actually translated as kindness. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind, epios, to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with, guess what, gentleness, but a totally different Greek word there that also means meekness, correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So in this case, gentleness, the gentleness that Paul and the others were showing was, was in a maybe a more general sense as they preached to them, they, they taught the gospel to them, they even lived among them, but they did so in this gentle way and with this tremendous word picture as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. I think we get the picture there, don't we? If if Paul and 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 the group just showed up and just kind of started steamrolling these these idol worshippers with the gospel, I think the presumption is is that he might have less favorable results. For instance, if a boss wants an employee to get something done, he can be very forceful, right? Joe, get on that forklift, get that pallet off the ceiling there get it packaged up get it shipped get it into the truck and get it out of here and joe might be going yeah okay whatever dude you know fine fine or he can say hey joe you know i was thinking it's about time we get that pallet off the uh, top rack there let's go ahead and get it uh, prepared for shipping get it in the truck and get it out of here and joe goes yeah no problem boss or uh well which one do you think is going to have the better you know reaction right the better effect So in this case, Paul knew that the Thessalonians would respond much better if they experienced gentleness and loving care and concern, even affection as a parent to a child, and more specifically, a mom feeding her her infant, as Paul was feeding the infants there at Thessalonica, spiritual infants. 
Now, we might also interject here, and, and it's kind of a good thing to do sometimes, ask what is not going on. Well, what is this not saying? Paul is not saying that there might not be times when the gospel is going to come out hard, when the gospel is going to come out fast, when the, the gospel is going to come out even with a certain amount of force. You know, maybe there's a situation where false teachers are being dealt with, and, and there's a certain power from the Holy Spirit that will accompany the preacher to more intensely combat and even wring out the truth in, in, a, in, a, in again, a more forceful way. But if the word gentleness is also kindness, then it tells us that as we encounter people to share Christ with, this is the attitude we need to present, generally speaking. In fact, what could be more kind or loving or even gentle than to share Christ with someone? And this is where I think we sometimes fail, friends, is is when we allow ourselves, for instance, to get into a debate with someone. We've been talking about this in the evangelism class we, we allow ourselves to get into a debate when in reality, really, our intention or what we know we need to do is share the gospel. But it kind of turns to this, and maybe it's, you know, it's about good, good things, biblical things. You know, it's about evolution versus creationism. Maybe the, today's world, gender, transgender, homosexuality versus by God's design comes up. Maybe it's, uh, you get into that abortion versus right to life based on the scriptures. And, and in those debates, then you realize, uh-oh, things are starting to get a little heated here. Things are, you know, everything's rising up. Emotions are getting higher. My voice is getting louder. I'm getting a little more upset and I'm getting a little more forceful. And, you know, next thing you know, it's not gentle. It's not kind. It's just flat out argumentative. And then we catch ourselves and we go, oh, wait a minute. Do those arguments, are they going to save those people? Any of those arguments going to save those people? Absolutely not. What will save them? The power of the gospel, right? That's it. The power of the gospel. In those moments, we need to remember the fruit of the Spirit, right? I had to remember this when I was putting this together. Oh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Say it with me. Gentleness and self-control, right? Let your spirit, your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Paul mentions both gentleness and kindness. Uh, that was in Philippians 4, 5, by the way. Paul mentions both gentleness and kindness as characteristics of a bondservant of the Lord in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. And of course, we have the Lord himself saying, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Someone once said, the gentleness of Christ is the comeliest ornament a Christian can wear. I like that. Do you wear gentleness when you share Christ or when you have that opportunity to share Christ? Let us remember 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, when Peter writes, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Well, secondly, the gospel should be shared with a willingness to back up words with actions. It should be shared with a willingness to back up your words with your actions. We see in verse 8, he says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. And this really continues Paul's thought from verse 7, but 
it goes a bit deeper. If we start from the end of the verse in a short amount of time, we see that this group of people had become very close to Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They had developed this very fond affection for them. But here's what we should focus on. The fact that not only the trio was pleased to impart the gospel of God to them, meaning the message of the gospel, but also they were willing to impart their own lives to them. I think this is important. There's a a famous story some of you might know about a Franciscan monk by the name of Francis of Assisi. The story goes like this. Founder of the Franciscan Order of Monks, Francis of Assisi, one day said to several of his followers, let us go to the village over the way and preach. And as they went, they met a humble pedestrian who was greatly burdened. Francis was in no hurry, and so he listened carefully to his tale of woe. And when the village was reached, Francis talked with the shopkeepers. Oh, he spent some time with the farmers at their fruit and vegetable stalls. He even played with the children in the streets. And on the way back, they met a farmer with a load of hay, and Francis spent time with him. The morning gone, the group reached the monastery from where they had set out early that morning. And one of the followers, who was greatly disappointed, said to Francis, Brother Francis, you said we were going to preach. The morning is spent, but no sermon has been given. And Francis replied, oh, but we have been preaching all the way. Well, there's some truth to that, right? In terms of our actions, what we would say is missing is, well, our actions also have to include the gospel, right? It has to include the message of the gospel. Or let's say we absolutely need the message of the gospel, but we want to see our lives, our actions, our behavior back that up. So that they see the gospel in action in us. Amen? Okay. Yes, in the sense of imparting their lives to the people they wish to reach. But we would acknowledge as Paul does in our text. The other half must be the gospel message being given. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. But also our own lives. Both, right? What does this mean for us? Well, maybe you have a neighbor that you've been thinking, you know, I know I really need to share the gospel with them, but oh, there just hasn't been a, a really good time. And, and, you know, hopefully it's not one of those things where you see them pull in, you're like, oh, I better get inside, you know, so I can kind of avoid the gospel conversation again, you know. But you're, you're thinking about it, and, and uh, you're waiting for that perfect time. Guess what, friends? That perfect time isn't ever going to come, right? How about just being a good and friendly neighbor to them on the outset? Get to know them. Offer to help them out with something around their house or a project they're doing. Maybe you see one out out there, you know, doing yard work and you join them or what have you. Maybe you just take them a plate of cookies just because. Or maybe you're at work and you got your eye on a a number of folks. You think, oh, yeah, okay, here's my here's my field. Uh, here are the ones that I'd like to, uh, to, to share with. But man, my boss just is always around, uh, always breathing down my neck, and I'm just not really comfortable sharing the gospel at work. Um, and there's never really a good time. But what have you done to start to get to know them and to start establishing relationships with them? Maybe you, you could reach out and seek to bless them in some way, even your boss. And, and do you give 110% at work? for even the sake of the gospel. What about the people that you run into just once in a while? You know, the, the, the checker at the grocery store or the, or the clerk down at the, 
at the uh, post office or, or the person who served you at the restaurant or a bank teller, grocery store checker, you know, not that you can necessarily stop and spend oodles of time with them in those kind of contexts, but whatever time that you have with them, I mean, are you kind and caring towards them? You offer them a smile or maybe, hey, how's your day? And really be prepared to, to, for their response, to listen, you know? Who knows when and where God may open the door of gospel opportunity? And what about right here at church? Right here. Are you imparting your life to others? Do you stick around after church and, and meet folks? Are you the type that, that, that uh, you know, you're parking in the back so you can kind of slip out the back and choom, away you go? Kind of deal. Do you attend fellowship events? Oh, we had a tremendous one the other night, Trunk or Treat. Oh, it was awesome. There were so many people here and kids. And I've heard some of our, our members say, I, I would estimate even maybe half were not people necessarily from our church. Praise God. But do you, do you, do you even have people over to your house? Do you help out when there's needs in the body? Are you a, a mature, mature man or woman who can invest some time and effort, energy, even discipleship towards another younger man or younger woman or, or a, a newer believer? Are you a couple even who can pour into the lives of another couple, the older discipling the younger? And even while in, imparting their lives, part of that was for Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they were still speaking the gospel to people. And when we do that, then we can share it in any number of ways, right? So when you do get that gospel opportunity to speak Christ, to share Christ, then you want to be ready, right? You want to have kind of uh, something ready to go. This is exactly what we're trying to help people with in our evangelism class with uh, Bob Powell. Last week, I kind of took you through four spiritual laws. You know, okay, you're going to need to know something about God. You're going to need to know something about um, where we stand as people with God. You're going to need to know something about Jesus, and then you're going to need to know something about calling them to faith. This week, I just thought I would share with you another way of presenting that's kind of a little different. Ultimately, you, you hope to get there. This is a little more of a, an, an opening kind of thing, and, and it's something that really gets people thinking. And if you're familiar with Ray Comfort or Living Waters, then you're probably familiar with this. And uh, we actually have this as a gospel track that I love when we, when we uh, go out on, um, the group goes out, the evangelism group on uh, Saturday nights. It's one of my favorites. It's the, uh, it's the million dollar bill here. And you go, hey, what, you, you, here's, the million dollar, here's the million dollar question. Will you go to heaven when you die? Okay, you're willing to take a quick test. Here's the test. Here's the test. Have you ever lied? Uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, you know, even, even a little bit, even a little white lie, we like to call them, right? Have you ever stolen something? And they're thinking. Have you ever, you ever used God's name in vain? Have you ever looked at someone with lust? Well, then, friends, by your own admission, then, and God's definition, you would be called a liar, a thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterer. Because to lust after someone is to commit adultery in your heart. And this is called sin. And the Bible warns that there will be consequences for your sins against God. Namely death and eternal punishment in hell. 
But you see, God is not willing, friends, for anyone to perish. Sinners break God's law, but thankfully Jesus paid the fine. And and this means then that God can legally dismiss your case. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And you see, friends, that, that Jesus has paid the price for your sin by dying on the cross. And then he was buried in the ground three days. Three days later, he, he raises from the dead to new life. And if you would repent and believe, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus as your Savior, then, then you will find forgiveness. You will have forgiveness from all your sins, past, present, and future, and you will receive his, his free gift of everlasting life. There you go. These are just things that you can, you can learn. You can, you can kind of have these little tools in your, your gospel toolbox, your arsenal, if you will. Oh, and there's, you know, probably a hundred other ways to, to do this and to start sharing Christ with people. But again, we need to back up the gospel with our lives, with our actions. Thirdly, the gospel should also be shared without extra burdens. Or I put in parentheses, no strings attached, Right? No strings attached. He says in verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So what's going on here? Well, Paul's referring to working even a secular job in addition to his gospel ministry. We see a few things going on with this. First, it was out of necessity. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs." So he commends the church for sending on some needed gifts and funds, but acknowledges that, no, this, so I'm going to need to, uh, I'm going to need to do something else here, certainly, to help support just myself and, and the other fellas. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 1 to 4, Paul writes this. He says, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, by their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. This is amazing. Verse 3. I love this. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. These are churches that didn't have any money to give. And they're begging, pleading, no, let us give, let us give, let us give. Secondly, Paul knew that there were many out there trying to make a buck off their religion. There just were. One such example is just before this, when Paul and the the fellows were in Philippi. Paul drove out the spirit of the slave girl whose masters were using her as a, a fortune teller to make money. And they got pretty ticked off when Paul did that. So Paul never wanted to be in a position where someone could try and accuse him of making a profit off the gospel. He wanted to absolutely be above reproach. Now a third reason 
that we see here is that Paul never wanted to be a financial burden to anyone, especially those that he was evangelizing. So he and the fellows had their day jobs, or I guess you could say night jobs, because he said we worked night and day. So you figure when he wasn't preaching or teaching the gospel, whether that was at night, then he's working during the day. If he's preaching during the day, he's working at night. They were working. And Paul, of course, was a tent maker. A tent maker. That was his job by trade. We find this in Acts 18, verses 1 to 3, after he left Thessalonica. And he kept working his way south until he ends up in Corinth, where he meets up with a husband and wife team, Aquila and Priscilla, also tent makers by trade. Now, there's a fourth reason that Paul worked this secular tent-making job that we see in Acts 20, verses 33 to 35. Here he's in Ephesus, and he's kind of giving his farewell speech to the elders there at the church in Ephesus, saying farewell to them, uh, that they had become very dear to him. And he reminds them, quote, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So in other words, Paul saw his work as helping to also teach spiritual truths about loving others. And helping others with physical needs and teaching others about hard work and even working hard himself and for them, for the glory of God. And in that, his excellent work ethic would certainly influence and even draw people to the gospel and following Christ. People would see him walking his talk. They need to see that from us as well. Absolutely, most certainly. What else does this mean for us? I think we can come up from several applications here for this text. That, that friends, we would have an excellent work ethic. right? Whether that's at an outside job or that's inside the home. For the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. Secondly, we should never present the gospel in such a way that puts burdens on people. This is why missionaries always get their support from back home, right? They, they, don't, they don't ask that church that they have founded or set up necessarily to, to foot their ministry bill. Even when we go on uh, short-term missions trips, like here out of Calvary, we always pay our way. And then when we get there, it's been my experience that we bring them some money so that we're not a burden even as we might stay with them during that missions trip. Thirdly, this may be pushing the interpretation and and application of this text, but we should never add burdens or, or attach strings to the gospel message. And I think we mentioned this last time, but we shouldn't, you know, put something with the gospel like believe in Jesus and give the church your money, right? Or, or, or add things to the gospel that aren't necessary or that I think I mentioned last time that, well, you have to believe in the gospel version that's in the King James uh, uh, version, you know, uh, of text. Or, or in order to confess your sins, you have to do so through a priest. We never want to offer the gospel in exchange for something in return, except maybe their repentance, right? We certainly never ask money in exchange for the gospel. Now, there is, I would just, you know, 
briefly say there is certainly a difference between gospel ministry as some kind of paid vocation that we see in the scripture uh, versus trying to make a buck off the gospel. But, you know, it should never be, well, I would love to share God's truth with you. And I will do so. Just please send me twenty nine ninety five, Cash, check, Venmo, bell, whatever you like. Fourthly, fourthly, the gospel should be shared with excellent behavior. Excellent behavior. We've already seen Paul's excellent behavior in his work. And this is one that you kind of hope goes without saying. But nonetheless, Paul writes in verse 10, you are witnesses. And so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Of course, now he's addressing them as believers because he is writing to them months after the fact of his being there. But he's careful to point out that not only were they witnesses to how he, Silas, and Timothy behaved, but God was also a witness to their behavior Now, why do you think Paul would have to make such a big deal about these things and how many witnesses there were, including God? Well, because they were getting hit right and left with opposition. Even there in Thessalonica, and I'm sure that people were saying all kinds of nasty things to the Thessalonian believers and trying to get them to even renounce the gospel and, and come back to the idol worship. And, and they're trying to, to get a, a case made against Paul and the others specifically. Now, the first three words they're describing their behavior are devout, upright, and blameless. The Greek word there for devout really means sacred or holy. So here in our text, it has the, the connotation, connotation, excuse me, connotation of piety, meaning Paul, Silas, Timothy's actions were pure and morally clean. They exhibited a a holy lifestyle to the Thessalonians with their behavior. And then we see that they are upright or righteous. The word literally means honest or without injuring anyone. And then, of course, blameless being blameless without fault. So their behavior before the Thessalonians, it was it was holy. It was righteous. It was blameless. Sounds kind of like Job, right? In chapter 1, verse 1, we hear uh, just this tremendous description of Job. A man described by God as blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, we might be thinking, man, okay, now, now this is becoming kind of a tall order to fill. So I've got to do all these things and I've got to make sure that I am, am living righteously and, 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 and blamelessly and, and, and devoutly. Yes. <laughs> yes, right. But here's the thing. Here's, here's the tremendous blessing that we have. We're not going to be able to do it on our own. Absolutely not on our own. We will do it because we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us that, that makes known to us the Word of God. And that is where we will get our power from and, and, and any ability there to live excellent lives in front of others. Well, we have three more adverbs that come up in verse 11. 
which also come with a word picture of how a father behaves towards his own children. In this case, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are the fathers, and the Thessalonians are their spiritual children. Exhorting, we saw this back in chapter 2, verse 3, and we learn that the word is parakaleo, which has a wide variety of meanings, including to aid and to help and to comfort, encourage, entreat, desire, call for, even beseech. And again, it's the word that Jesus used when he was speaking of sending the Holy Spirit to the uh, apostles there in the upper room. And it, it works best here as calling someone to do something. The Thessalonians were, were having the gospel shared with them. They were being called to repentance and belief in the gospel. And then they were being shown how to live out the gospel in their everyday lives. And again, just think of a father exhorting his children that we would be doing these same things and bringing them these exhortations, teaching them and and showing them how to do something or how to put something into practice and also admonishing them or correcting them or showing them how when they've messed up or they've blown it. Well, then we see that, that Paul and company were encouraging them Encouraging them. This is a, a word, paramutheomai, paramutheomai, and it, it's to speak kindly or soothingly to comfort or pacify. It's actually a synonym with parakaleo, and, and Paul often puts these two together. It's used in John 11, verse 19, for consoling Martha and Mary at the, the death of Lazarus, her brother, and their brother, and, and, and think of, too, how a father seeks to console or comfort or show tenderness to his children when things are difficult or they are experiencing hurt or heartache or even pain. And of course, persecution was hot on their tails. And so Paul knew that they would need plenty of encouraging. This is such a popular word for Christians, this word encourage. As rightly it should be, I I love the passage in Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25, where it says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near here encouraging is actually paracoleto but that's okay again encouraging exhorting paul puts them side by side and then lastly on this list we see imploring literally testifying to acting as a witness it's from the greek word marturomai marturomai Think of what word we get from that. Marturomai, martyr. Martyr, right? These that would act as faithful witnesses to the faith and then actually give their lives for the faith, for the glory of Christ. Paul and Silas and Timothy were absolutely faithful witnesses to the gospel. And that was prevalent, friends, in their own lives. And now imploring the Thessalonians, as a father would, to be and do the same. To be and do the same. Now, by the way, notice too that Paul points out that they're exhorting 
and they're encouraging and they're imploring. It just kind of didn't go out in kind of a general way to them, but it says to each one, to each one of the Thessalonian believers, meaning as individuals, not just in that general kind of collective from the pulpit kind of a kind of a way. But this means that they as leaders then were interacting with the people in a personal way. May may we remember some of these things when even we share the gospel. Sometimes it might be, I just want to get the gospel message out. And and once I do that, then then okay, then I can I can get out and I can move on. And and Lord help me get the gospel out here and then that's okay, I can get out and move on. And and uh or would it be even more effective to make sure we get the gospel out but then Try to stay in that person's life. Try to try to be a friend to them. Try to encourage them uh, to even come to church or continue that relationship with them if they are somebody that you've met certainly outside the church, which is where most of those conversations will happen, obviously. And know, friends, that as Paul and company were imparting not only the gospel to the Thessalonians again, they were imparting their own lives doing so devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly and exhorting and encouraging and imploring them. And, and so then as we consider our own hearts there as individuals and how we might do this with others, then we also consider collectively as a church body how we do that and how we're doing as a church in those departments of devout living and upright living and blameless living and and exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. Well, lastly, the gospel should be shared, number five, with an intended purpose. With an intended purpose. Look at verse 12. He says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, because I I thought that the intended purpose of the gospel is for people to get saved. To be forgiven of their sins. Go to heaven. And to that we would say, well, yes. A hearty amen. Of course it is. But the gospel is not simply fire insurance, friends. We've got to make sure, too, that people understand that it is not simply fire insurance. It is not just there so that you can get some kind of, of relief once you've believed. And okay, great. Now I know I'm not going to hell. I'm not going to the lake of fire. But, oh, cool. So I can just go over here and just go back to my... Uh, fleshly life and do what I was doing and and know that everything's going to be just peachy. Nothing could be further from the truth. You're not saved so that you can return to your flesh, friends. You're not saved to return to that, 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 that old life that was just characterized by habitual sin. You and I are saved specifically to be gospels messengers to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Disciples of Jesus. You know, last week, I think I started off with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, just to refresh ourselves one last time. Jesus came up and spoke to them, that was the apostles there, before he rose up into heaven, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and get people saved in all the nations. Is that what your text says? That's not what my text says. I'm making that up. My text says, not get people saved. It says, make disciples. Make disciples of all the nations. In other words, followers of Jesus, which begins with salvation. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the point. That's the point of sharing Christ. That is the intended purpose. That yes, salvation would come to many, but that disciples, followers of Jesus Christ would be made. So in verse 12 of our text, we're reminded by Paul again that the Thessalonians were called by God into his kingdom, into his glory, which is to say salvation with the future promise of glorification and eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And back in chapter 1, verse 4, we understood that this was God's choice of them with the intended purpose, along with receiving his kingdom and glory, that then they would walk in a manner worthy of God. What is that to say but to be a follower, a disciple of Christ? In other words, the fact that anyone would be saved with the future hope of heaven and eternal life should change the way a person lives, acts, behaves, that their life would now be about the glory of God by walking in a manner that would be pleasing to him. So, beloved, we've seen this extension here now after verses 1 to 6 and 7 to 12. Understanding just from the example of Paul and Silas and Timothy to the Thessalonians and then how they, of course, became imitators and examples to others that the gospel, I'm not going to say should, I'm going to say needs to be shared with true care and concern. And the gospel needs to be shared with a willingness from you and I to back up our words with actions and behaviors. I was, I was, uh, uh, this, there's this great little booklet. I remember getting here, I think, at Calvary when we were here previously. And it's called Agape Leadership. And it's about this man named R.C. Chapman. And Spurgeon said, he is the saintliest man I ever knew. He lived at the time of Spurgeon. For Spurgeon to say, he's the saintliest man I ever knew. And I was just reminding myself uh, of some of the things that, that he did as a humble servant of the Lord. I don't have time to even tell you all of them. If you want, get the book, Agape Leadership. It's a very short one, great read. But boy, you see somebody who is backing up the gospel words with his life. But the gospel needs to be shared also without extra burdens. We can't put extra things in there that will be a burden to people or, or that we somehow kind of put strings attached to them. And the gospel needs to be shared with, yes, excellent behavior. Because if you share the gospel and they don't see excellent behavior, right? How's that going to go over? You know, I always will say, well, you know, if you've sat down to dinner and you get that call from the telemarketer, and you're kind of just grumpy and snappy and you cut them off and whatnot and you, or you hang up on them or whatever. What if they called back? Would you be able to share the gospel with them after just the way that you were with them? What about the person that's riding your tail and riding your tail and riding your tail and then they go, zoom, zoom, zoom. And you want to make some, you know, kind of hand gestures to them or you want to give them the evil glare as they drive by. What if you actually were able to pull over and talk to them? Could you share the gospel with them after that? Now, 
We, we've got we've to be careful to have that excellent behavior always. And then lastly, the gospel needs to be shared with an intended purpose. Yes, certainly somebody's salvation. But we see in Jesus' great commission that what that really looks like is to make them followers, disciples of Christ. Salvation, sanctification, the whole kit and caboodle. Amen? How are you doing with those things on a personal level? How are we doing with these things as a church body? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for these tremendous words and truths that we see come from Paul and Silas and Timothy. Lord, I pray that we would take heed, that we would be assessing even right now and into this week, Lord, just where we, where we stand here with you and, and with these things that we have learned and what are the things that maybe we're, yeah, okay, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay in this area, but man, over here, I, I could be doing things a little differently. And Lord, that you would help us, each one, to be uh, uh, the men and women uh, that are your followers, your disciples, that we would be seeking to imitate Christ and, of course, people like Paul and the apostles, but that we would, Lord, then become examples, examples to one another, but also examples to the world at large and those we come in contact with for the sake of the gospel. We pray for anyone here, Lord, that is yet to receive Christ as Savior and Lord, that they would do so even right now with a prayer of seeking your, your forgiveness, Father, that they would repent and believe. We pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.